You know, since creation itself, I suppose, humans have been asking, wondering, writing about, theorizing about, what is evil? And how did it get here? Every faith, every culture around the world asks these questions. And the question that always follows is, what can we do about it? See, our Bibles give us some insight uh, into this question. You may already know the story about Adam and Eve in the Garden of God, but maybe you ever wondered, why was the serpent there in the first place? Maybe you've already had some background info about Satan and and the spiritual rebellion and the fall, but why was the serpent there in in God's perfect garden? The same evil was described as a crouching power preying upon Adam and Eve's children outside of the garden, luring them into the powers of death as well. But maybe you've thought about that before. What about about Noah's Ark? See, Noah was described as a righteous man, blameless even, by God himself. He was described as a man who walked with God, and most of us know him as a hero in God's grand story. Why? Well, uh, as far as I'm concerned, every child's Bible I've found portrays him as such. I've seen that this Bible ends with Noah and the happy ending with a rainbow. Uh, same goes with this children's Bible. Same with the tales from the ark. This is kind of the perspective of the animals, kind of cute. Uh, and it ends again with this happily ever after rainbow. The problem is that's not how the story ends. Yes, that exists. But what ends up happening is after after Noah comes off of the boat, after the world is washed clean of all its evil, this previously declared righteous and blameless man who walks with God immediately gets plastered, drunk. And he gets naked, he goes into a tent, and his son takes advantage of his drunkenness and nakedness in a uh, confusing and sketchy manner. It's complex, And theologians differ about what exactly happened in that tent uh, when uh, his son went in and gazed upon the nakedness of the father. But most agree that something more happened than mere circumstance when he walked into that tent. If you're uncomfortable, that's kind of the point. I wonder why we kept it out of our children's books. (laughs) The story goes on to describe that actually this event, this cat, was a catalyst. It was a catalyst for a whole culture of people, the Canaanites, who were filled with vile and evil practices, which means evil shared a room on the boat with Noah. How did it get there? Why was it allowed? What what happened? And it's not just Noah. Look at every hero in our Old Testament, and you'll find that they are not exactly heroes. (laughs) They're deeply flawed, complicated individuals. And yeah, they had high points in their stories, sure. But they also included deeply troubling stories of lust, greed, arrogance, rage, and violence. But before you go judging them, what about us? (laughs) Where we live in the land of opportunity. We have resources and food in abundance, enough to stockpile in our stores and in our food pantries. We've been given unalienable rights, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Even our poorest in our communities would be considered wealthy in comparison to the rest of human history. And yet, our culture is soaked in these qualities, isn't it? A flood, if you will, that never really went away. Our culture is drenched in lust, greed, arrogance, rage, and violence. Don't believe me? Just read the news. And I don't know about you, but I've actually never found an organization uh, who props these values up and says that these are our main intent. (laughs) 
right? Like, like even the causes that I disagree with most, they still promote love and tolerance and freedom and happiness, confused as I believe they may be. That's at least their aim, right? Yet very few cultures actually resemble that. Even as Christians, you know, like even as Christians, we find that we want to follow Jesus. And yet we have these intrusive thoughts, lustful, greedy, arrogant, rageful, violent. Are we just slaves to this stuff? Is there any hope at all? And the question we have to ask is, how has Jesus changed any of this? Well, that, I think, is the point of Paul's message today as we dive into Romans chapter 7. But before we do that, uh, I think it's important we pray. So if you guys want to bow your heads with me. God, I pray that you uh, would give me words to speak. God, any word that is not of your own, I pray that you would uh, allow that to fall on deaf ears. And God, I pray that you give us all ears to hear what it is that you have to say. Pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, in the past couple of weeks, uh, we've taken a break from our regularly scheduled program to invite in a couple of guest speakers, right? Um, but if you've been here a while, you know that we've been working through the book of Romans. A couple of weeks ago, uh, both Glenn and Chris talked about Romans chapter 6. We talked about how we have died to our sins. We have been raised to life in Christ and been set free from slavery to sin and released into God's freeing spirit. Uh, and today, we'll see that Paul isn't completely finished with those points. Uh, you'll hear some repetition towards the beginning, but you'll also hear some seemingly contradictory thoughts, such as a claim that Paul himself is a slave to sin. But before we dive in, here's kind of my disclaimer. Uh, this text, uh, it's, it's tricky. <laughs> it's tricky. Uh, Paul can use some complicated language, some complex Greek. Uh, he has some puzzling analogies. And so if, if you start to feel like when you're reading, you're getting a little lost in some of the argument, that's okay. I'm going to try to catch you back up to speed. Um, he, Paul was a little confusing, so much so that even apostles at that time mentioned him in their writings. Peter, for example, he says, when he was talking to another church about Paul, he says, you know, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Uh, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking them on these matters. And his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Right? Like, like even, this is in your Bible. This is other Bible authors writing about themselves. And, uh, and they're saying, like, yeah, Paul can be tough. And even to this day, brilliant theologians disagree on how to interpret this very chapter. It's pretty contested. Thomas Schreiner, scholar and professor of the New Testament interpretation, he's written nearly 40 books on the New Testament and over the course of his 70 years of life. And, and this is what he wrote about Romans chapter 7. He said, Some think that this text isn't difficult. But I have wrestled with this passage over and over, and I suppose I'm not finished yet. Yeah, let's just give it to the youth pastor. <laughs> He'll figure it out. Right? Like, like this, is, this is tough. But the reality is, uh, even if you and I have a different view on this chapter, that's okay. Like, that's okay. Hopefully we can learn from each other, because in the end, we're going to come to the same conclusion, and that's this. We all need Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. So there's my disclaimer. So let's just jump in. Uh, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 25. I'm going to be reading the CSB version. So if you want, uh, I'm going to put the verses up on the screen, but you can feel free to follow along in your own translation. Uh, I know you've probably already noticed 25 verses is a lot of verses, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, well, we're going to try to tackle them in chunks. So you ready? Let's go. So it starts out, Paul says, Since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters... Shoot, we already got to stop. <laughs> we already got to stop right there. I know I said we'd go a little further, and we'll go faster, I promise. But 
in all honesty, I think this is one of the most important pieces to consider when it comes to putting this puzzle together that Paul lays out for us. Remember what Dan taught us at the beginning of this series. He said that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. That means that we are not the original audience that this was intended for, uh, which means when it comes to interpreting our Bibles, we need to pay attention to who was uh, so that we can know how to interpret it for ourselves. And in verse 1, Paul tells us right here, he says, since I'm speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters. So what's that mean? Specifically, what is this word, the law? Well, today I'm going to take you back to a book that I've brought you to before. I like to call it Kale's book of short and helpful definitions that probably could use a bit more explaining, but we'll just have to do for right now. Still working on getting a shorter title for that one. And we're going to take a look at the law. Entry H8451 says, the law, otherwise the Torah, otherwise known as the Pentateuch or the Mosaic law, or simply put, the first five books of the Old Testament. Even to this day, modern Jewish readers go to what they call Torah class, and that's the law class, and they take a look at the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And so sometimes when we see the law spoken about in the New Testament, they might just be referring to those five books together. Point number two, they could be referring to of or referring to its content, either the whole of the book itself and or its commands. Example, one of or all of the 613 commandments listed. You maybe at some point in your life had to memorize 10 commandments. Imagine having to memorize 613 of them, <laughs> right? Like, like that's, what, that's what the Jewish people had. And that's why they called this the law, because it just summarized what was all inside of it. And so when Paul says that I'm speaking to those who know the law, I'm personally convinced that he's speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters at this point who study the Torah. Remember, Romans was written to a church that was consisting of two groups of people that were in conflict with each other and sometimes it was the Gentile and the Jewish Christians. And so sometimes they had a lot to argue about, about how much of this Torah they need to follow, how much they need to do with it. And uh, in week one, we learned about this, but We'll get to more of that later, but in my opinion, at this point, it's almost like he's talking to the church as a whole, but at this particular point, he goes, now I'm talking to my Jewish brothers and sisters. He kind of addresses them directly at this point. So when we see the word, the law, uh, in Romans chapter 7, I'm going to use the Hebrew word, the Torah. I think it might help us uh, when it comes to interpreting this chapter. Um, so again, let's start again. Since I'm speaking to those who know the Torah, brothers and sisters... Don't you know that the Torah rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, well, then she's released from the Torah regarding that husband. So then, if she's married to another man while her husband's living, she will be called adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that Torah. Then she's married to another man, she is not an adulteress. You see, one of the things that the Jewish people were arguing about at that day is how much of the Torah they still needed to follow, specifically ritualistic and uh, purity laws and kosher food diets, laws that solidified their identity in Judaism. And Paul is just pointing out logically that there are ways to be freed from the Torah, specifically death, <laughs> right? Like if you die, you can't follow the law anymore. Uh, death renders an individual, whether the person themselves or the person that you are bound to, freed from the legality of the law. It's pretty simple. While you are living, a Jewish man or a woman can't be held to the commands of the Torah. Or, uh, sorry, while you're living, they should be held to the commands of the Torah. But once they are dead, uh, you can't expect them to follow those anymore. Kind of makes sense, right? Pretty intuitive. So he goes on. He says, therefore... Brothers and sisters, you also who were put to death in relation to the Torah through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. 
You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, notice the past tense language there, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the Torah were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now, present tense language, but now we have been released from the Torah since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the Torah. Okay, at this point, you might be asking yourself, okay, great, that's awesome. That's great, Kale. Thank you so much for the history lesson, but I'm not Jewish. <laughs> like, so, so what does this have to do with me in any way? Well, okay, so hear me out here. Though Paul is talking to a Jewish audience, and I, and I think that's important, um, I have no problem saying that the identity that Paul is establishing here could apply to us too. Because in two verses, he says, he sets up a contrast. He says that we were once dead, but now we are alive. We were once bound, but now we are released. We were once of the old, but now we are in the new. We were once of the flesh, but now we are in the spirit. See, the words listed on the right there, they make up our truest identity in our Messiah, Jesus. But keep in mind who Paul was writing to. These people were not perfect. This church was plagued with a bunch of sin issues that they're going to address in a little while. So obviously, they're not all of these things all the time, right? Like, they're not perfect. But according to Paul, this is precisely who they truly are at their deepest core because of what happened Easter morning. It's their truest identity and you as well. I like to tell our students in Apex that their truest identity, identity is in the fact that you are chosen, you are loved, you are unique and divinely designed, you were bought with a price, and you are welcomed into God's family of free people. That's who you truly are deep down, according to Paul and the apostles, being made alive and released into the newness of the Spirit because of what Jesus did on Easter weekend. Amen? Amen. So in all honesty, we could stop right here, and Paul's argument would flow flawlessly into chapter 8. Some might even say it flows a little bit easier, but I'm not sure we've covered any of the questions that we brought up at the beginning of this, have we? And that's because Paul's not finished. He goes on. Because in verse 7, he wants to go back and clarify some things. See, over the past few weeks, Paul has said some pretty critical things about the Torah, such as it increases trespass, that it's an enslaver, that it's an accuser, that it's a stumbling block that leads to death. Based on what Paul is saying, I don't think it's that hard to make the leap and start to say, okay, Paul, so is the Torah evil? Right? Like, is it just a trap for our death? Is God evil because he gave it to us? Was it trap? And Paul cares deeply about his audience, and he cares deeply about loving the Lord as God with all his heart, might, and soul, and strength. But also, uh, he cares about his, loving his neighbor. In this case, it's the audience. And he doesn't want him to believe any of those untruths. And so he goes on to say, okay, well, what should we say then? Is the Torah sin? Absolutely not, right? Like, but I wouldn't have known what it was to sin if it wasn't for the Torah. For example, I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the Torah hadn't said, do not covet. And sin, though, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from Torah, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the Torah, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life in me, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me, for sin Seizing the opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the Torah is holy, and the commandment is holy, or the commandment is holy and just and good. So therefore, did what is good become a death to me? No, 
no, absolutely not, right? He says again, absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. If I were to give this a paraphrase, that last line, I would say sin wanted to show its true colors. But what Paul is describing here is that the Torah itself, it was a good thing. In fact, he says it's holy. It was designed for good. The Jewish people, they had a job to do. They were supposed to be a blessing to the world. And this law code was designed to guide them in their occupation. But the problem is, as mere humans, they didn't really have the life spirit to do this sort of thing. Apart from Christ, no matter how hard we try to live by this beautiful book alone, the fact is that we can't do it. Without being given the animating spirit of God himself and the grace to fall short, we're destined for failure on a path to death, eternally separated from God. And the reality is that's, that's not God's fault. <laughs> it's, like, it's like trying to take a rocket ship to the sun, right? Like you're going to burn up long before you reach anywhere near close enough to land on it. And is that the sun's fault? No. The sun just is, right? Like the sun just is. Our bodies just aren't equipped for such an experience. But that's not the sun's fault. The sun is. The same goes with God's holiness. See, the Torah, it revealed a really serious problem. What should have been an instruction manual to build a rocket ship to the sun revealed a problem because we don't have the necessary materials to build such a ship. They had been stolen from us. And Paul wants us to see that the Torah itself served as a magnifying glass to expose all of the sin of Israel. But let's not get judgmental here. Let's flip the script. Let's talk about ourselves. If, if chosen people of God, if they couldn't do it, then why on earth do we think we can be arrogant enough for us to think we can do it by our own power? Yet again, look at our culture, where people have started making their own instruction manuals. There are plenty of alternative Torahs for you to seek your fulfillment in. Plenty of them with handbooks of their own on how to become like God. Yeah, they won't say it that way, but it's what it is. They'll use great aspirations like goals and goodness, rather. Goodness, love, peace, integrity, beauty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. Self-help books and cultural movements will flood and soak the culture that we live in. Why? I think simply put, I mean, the invisible attributes of God have been clearly seen since the beginning of the world. Like, we want to be like God, even if we reject him as the source. The problem is we're awful at it, <laughs> and Paul just proved it. So I don't care what organization or movement you follow. Everything worth anything is going to claim it's got a good cause. But whatever structures are in place, whatever laws are being passed, whatever messages and banners are being flown up in, in windows and in sign shops and whatever, or I mean uh, shop windows or whatever, like without the life-giving spirit of God himself, all of our attempts are useless meaningless, misguided when it comes to real, meaningful, and lasting change. It requires something new. If the people of God couldn't do it, what chance does your organization have? It's arrogance, uselessness, foolishness on a cosmic scale. Boy, this is a cheery message. <laughs> I blame Paul. 
Because he's going to go on. He's not even finished yet. Paul's about to launch into this long argument. For the next 10 verses, he's going to take the persona of being a man trying to live life by the flesh. And in verse 14, he's going to go on to say that he holds no chance at all, unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Not understanding his own actions, but doing the very things he hates. And that leads him to believe that the Torah, it's still good. But sin is living inside of him, a power that's at work. So in verse 18, he'll go on and say, For I know nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I don't do the good that I want to do. No, I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, then it's, it's, not, it's not me that's doing it, but it's the sin inside of me. So I discover this Torah at work, when I want to do good, evil is present with me. For my inner self, well, I delight in God's Torah, but I see a different Torah, the anti-Torah, if you will, a different Torah in the parts of my body, waging war against the Torah of my mind and making me prisoner to the Torah of sin in the parts of my body. And he goes, what a wretched man I am. Who is going to rescue me from this body of death? It's the culmination of what feels like the most depressing Sunday morning message. It's an answer to our original question. What is evil and how did it get here and what can we do about it? Well, according to Paul's logic... Sin is an oppressive power that comes from the pits of hell and apparently is snuck in the back door. And what can we do about it? Well, evidently, it's a losing, depressing battle that results in him realizing the pitiful wretch that he is in his fleshly disposable body of death. It's hopeless. You and I can't do anything about it. And that's the reality that Paul is describing when he says when we're trying to live by our own power, by our own flesh, there is nothing we can do, even if we try our hardest. We are wretches in need of rescue. And maybe you already feel this way, even if you've accepted Jesus into your life, maybe you're still saying to yourself, okay, yeah, Kale, <laughs> that's me. I want freedom. I want what Jesus promises, but I don't seem to be experiencing that right now. It sounds like whatever Paul was talking about then is what I'm experiencing right now because when I look at the world and I see the people in it, I know they're God's children. I know that I should respect them, but I find that I'm lost in lust and I can't help it. And I give in to my temptations and I don't want to experience this, but there's evil right there beside me. I hate it. I hate it so much. I don't understand. Or maybe you're thinking, when things go the way that I don't want them to, I find that I just get angry. I'm so angry all the time. There's rage that bubbles up inside of me, and I take it out on the people I love most. I don't want to do this. I hate it. I hate it so much. I don't want it, but evil's right there beside me. Or maybe you say, when I'm jealous, I'm jealous, and it impacts my relationships. People can't trust me because I act out on it, and I act ways that I don't want to do, and they don't trust me anymore, so I don't know what to do. Or there's these intrusive thoughts. They pop into my head. I don't want to feel them anymore. I don't want to lose my life. But for some reason, they keep coming back, and I hate it. I don't get it. They're violent. They're cruel. And I don't understand. What is this? What's wrong with me? Where is the freedom that Jesus promises? Did that hit a little close to home? Me too. See, what you're experiencing... It's real. It's exposing. 
And it always starts with temptation and it hurts. Oh, does it hurt? It's the closest thing I can think of to hell itself. But that's because it's exactly what it is. See, the Bible will describe this experience as spiritual warfare. You see, Satan, he's a deceiver. He was the, the, the uh, serpent in the garden, tricking God's children. He was the power outside of the door, waiting to pounce and crouch on, or crouch and pounce on, uh, on Adam and Eve's children there as well, lead them, lure them into death. He was the power that was sitting on the boat with Noah. See, Satan, he's a thief. He's come to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus, oh Jesus, he has come so that you may have life and have it to the full. This is why after all of this overwhelming thoughts and feelings that Paul has been having, he just blurts out an exclamation. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. See, the next chapter, Paul is going to describe that it doesn't have to be like this anymore. That man that Paul describes, the man of absolute defeat and failure, someone who's exhausted by sin and can't seem to do anything right, a pitiful wretch in need of a rescuing savior. Well, it doesn't have to be like that anymore. Because now, well, now you have a choice to live with and in the Spirit to fight sin. You know, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, which means that you actually, one of the effects of the Holy Spirit that's working in your life is the fact that you get to do what you want to do. But God never, ever, ever says that resisting sin is going to be easy or light work, nor does he say that, uh, that you don't have to fight temptation. But he does say that he will be right there with you in it, and he'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. See, life isn't easy. It never was promised that way. But Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden light. Do you know what a yoke is? A yoke is this. It's a farming tool. You put it on a horse or a donkey so that it can carry more weight. You see, a donkey, a donkey can only carry about 100 to 200 pounds on its back before it collapses under its own weight. However, you put a 15-pound yoke on that same animal, relatively light, all of a sudden that animal can endure so much more. It can carry about 1,000 to 2,000 pounds worth of a cart full of supplies. The point of Jesus' analogy is not that you're going to live an easy life, but rather you can endure so much more doing something that would have absolutely broken you on your own. We also know that temptation itself alone is not a sin. Hebrews 2.18 says, For he himself has suffered when he was tempted, and he is able to help those who are tempted. goes on a little further, and 4.13 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Meaning, you have those intrusive thoughts and temptations. Jesus looks at you and goes, Yeah, you too. Me too. I've done this before. I've overcome this before, so let's do this together. I'm here. I'm with you. I love you. I care about you. So let's press on. You're my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister. You're my family. I'm here. I got you. I got you. See, Romans 7, it's bad news for us. It's exposing, right? But the good news comes in the first line of the next chapter where Paul says, Therefore... 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Remember what Paul once said we were. We were in the flesh, right? Well, according to Romans 8, now we now belong under a new law, the law of, or the Torah of the spirit, if you will. And so Romans 8, 3, he goes on, he says, for what the Torah could not do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Now, if you were here on Good Friday, you already have heard me do this before. Who did God condemn on the cross that day? Did he condemn Jesus? No, no, not exactly, not according to this verse. Did he condemn you? That's a little bit more... Hard to define yes and no. See, he condemned sin in the flesh. Remember who you once were. You were once of the flesh, right? But you are not anymore. Why? Because you belong to the law of the spirit of life. You no longer, you have died to your old self. Jesus, he didn't die so that you wouldn't have to. He died to show you how, (laughs) right? Like, Like you now can live in the Holy Spirit to have new life with him. You have a new life and a new hope because God is now with you. He is the embodiment of the freedom that you are now free to follow in. And Jesus is himself, he promises, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And yeah, you're going to fall short sometimes. But guess what? We have a God who is gracious. We have a God who wants to be there and says, all right, get back up. I'm, I'm with you, Gail. I love you. We're here. So embrace God who offers you freedom. Embrace Jesus. Embrace the Holy Spirit because without him, you're just a wretch following the whims of this world and the false promises of life, soaked in death, flooded in failure, a burden, a slave. But whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? So now what? What do we do? Well, first off, uh, if you don't know Jesus, uh, this is your chance. See, Paul has already told us. He's told us that the result of sin, your previous lifestyle, your lifestyle, what it is, the, the natural consequences of those things, it's death. But Jesus has offered you a free gift of God, and that's eternal life. Jesus offers you freedom, both for eternity and right now in the present. He offers to walk through life with you. So that you don't have to be a slave, alone, slave to the passions and the whims of this world, but that he wants, you to sa- he wants to save you from that. Simply put, because he loves you and he cares about you. He's not out to ruin your life or ruin your fun, I promise. <laughs> he wants to save your life. So don't walk away from this offer. I'm going to do something that we don't usually do here, but I, I want to pray right now. And so I want you to bow your heads with me. Close your eyes, bow your heads. And I'm going to ask some questions. If this is you right now and your heart is beating your chest, you're like, yeah, I know, I've wanted to be like this. I want, I want to find freedom. I want Jesus. I want to be part of this new life. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a slave to my passions. I've been doing everything wrong, and, and I want to follow Jesus. Well, this is your opportunity. So with everybody's eyes closed and their heads bowed, if that's you and you're interested in following Jesus for the first time, I ask that you just raise your hand for me so I know how to pray for you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
And even if you didn't raise your hand, that's, that's okay. If this is the, the echo of your heart and you know this is what I want, I'm going to pray a prayer right now, and I pray that you would uh, pray along with me in the quietness of your heart. Lord Jesus, I want to know you personally. I know I've been a sinner. I've been a slave to my passions. God, I pray for your rescue. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life and make me the person you want me to be. I give you my life. And in Jesus' name, amen. Can we lift your heads up? If that was you today, I just want you to know heaven celebrates this moment because it has welcomed in another son, another daughter, and it is incredible. The angels of the Lord are partying in heaven because of what you've just done. Praise the Lord, and I celebrate with you. So what do we do now? Well, first off, if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, I ask that you tell somebody like, tell somebody before you leave, whether that's me or another pastor or another friend who brought you, you here or somebody else, tell somebody, because we want to be able to celebrate with you. But what do we do next? Well, two, I think we get to know him. You can't have a relationship with someone if you ignore them, right? right? If, if you know this, if you're a spouse or you have a girlfriend or boyfriend, you know if you want to be with them, you got to be with them. It's the same way with God. See, he's chosen to speak to you through his people, through his spirit, and through his word. So read it. Chew on it. Process it. I know having a pastor tell you to read their Bible almost sounds cliche at this point. But this thing, it's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating to both soul and spirit. This thing, guard your life with it. I want to see you guys have some beat-up Bibles. <laughs> because here's the thing. The pages themselves, the paper, that's not holy. It's the words inside. And so I want you to open it as much as you can. Crease it, put dog ears in it, highlight it, underline it. Put everything you can in it because I want to see you using this thing. God wants you to know him. Ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. Maybe you needed to be told that today. It's okay to ask questions. Seek answers. You have a God who wants to communicate with you. That's amazing. So let him. Oops. Number three, see sin for what it really is. You see, sin, it's come to bind you and destroy you, and it belongs on a corpse, not you. You are now alive, perfumed with the fragrance of Christ. What happens when you put perfume on a corpse? Yeah, it still stinks. But you aren't dead anymore. You've been baptized with Christ. So you don't have to feel guilty about your past mistakes. Jesus already took care of it. But you can choose to reject them now in the present. Kill it and send it away with the old corpse of yourself. Number four, walk in and trust in the Holy Spirit and participate with the body of Christ. I have a question for you. Where is Jesus' body right now? Oh, it's kind of tough, right? Like we know that Jesus walked and talked today. He was crucified and he was buried on the third day and then he rose from the dead. 
We know that he, uh, he walked and talked and ate with the disciples for 40 more days after resurrection. We know that he rose to the right hand of God the Father, and 10 days later, he sent down his spirit. So I ask again, where is the body? That's well, kind of a trick question, okay, right? So Jesus does stand as a mediator with God in heaven, but apparently you belong to that same realm, right? You belong to the same realm of Christ, and when the Bible describes God's people, it describes us as what? The body of Christ, right? Like, y'all together, collectively, are the body of Christ. So lean on each other. Participate with each other. Don't let church become some weekly event that you merely observe. Get to know who you sit by. Participate with each other. Find someone older and wiser than you who can help guide you in the ways of Jesus. Think about it. If you want to get better at a skill or a sport, do you go to the person who's worse than you? And go say, like, ah, they won't judge me. They know what I'm struggling with, so you know what? Like, I'm going to go to them and ask for help. No, all they can do is make you feel better about the bad game you currently have. <laughs> no, you go to a trainer. You go to a skilled athlete. You go to a professional. You go and you humble yourself. You show them your ugly form and let them guide you. I had the, uh, the uh, pleasure of going disc golfing with one of my best friends. Uh, his name's Ryan Groshek. And, and Ryan, uh, he wouldn't say this about himself, but I'll do it for him. Uh, he is professional level good at disc golfing. He's so good. He's so good. Uh, and so walking around this course... Well, I'm just going to be honest, I don't really like disc golfing with Ryan. <laughs> like, I, have to, I feel bad about my, like, game. Like, you know, like, he's throwing it, always landing it right under the, uh, in the hole. And, and, like, he literally got a hole in one on the sixth hole. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, I'm throwing it in the weeds, and we have to go searching, and he's looking for my disc for me. And I'm like, I'm making excuses the whole time. Like, oh, I'm not usually like this. Like, I've just been, it's been a little while, I guess, you know. And I'm thinking, like, uh, whatever. But on the other hand, I also got to go disc golfing with my friend, uh, Justin. I like disc golfing with Justin. He's no Ryan Groshek, right? Like, he is terrible. He's so bad. He's miserable. Seriously, I'm, I'm not even exaggerating. He's so bad. And so when we go disc golfing, I throw it. And, it, and by the way, I asked for his permission to share that. So I just want you to know. Um, I throw it. And, you know, like, it goes and it, like, goes straight, you know, a little bit of ways. And then it goes into the trees and, like, hits a tree. And I'm like, oh, shoot. And he goes, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? It got so far. And I'm like, eh, you know, stick with me, kid. Like, yeah, you'll figure it out. I like disc golfing with Justin. But the reality is Justin can't help me with my driving game, right? Like, all he can do is make me feel better about the bad game I currently have. What I really need to do is I need to go to Ryan and I need to humble myself and say, hey, um, I know this is embarrassing, but when I approach, when I approach the plate and I try to throw it, um, it's going to look real good for a little while, and then it's going to come crashing down really hard, and I'm going to be lost in the weeds, I'm stuck in the thorns, and I'm looking for a long time, and it hurts, and I don't like it. I don't want it, but this is what happens. And then I'm going to try again, and it'll do the same thing. And then he can look at me, and he can say, hey, I know I've been there before. I know how that works. Uh, you know what? I, I'm looking at your form right now, and I, and I notice that you're just throwing it like a Frisbee. I'm like, don't do that. I'm going to show you a little, little posture, a little X step, and you're going to pull it and release like, a, like you're pulling a uh, um, lawnmower. And I said, are you sure? That feels weird. That doesn't feel normal. That feels awkward and strange. And I, he goes, yeah, try it out. Give it a shot. I'm like, oh, that worked. Oh, that, that looks a lot better. It's not perfect, but man, that, that seemed to work. He goes, yeah, I know. Why don't we set up a, an org, um, some meeting? Maybe I can help you. We can work, work through this together. See, the same goes in your Christian walk. Find someone who's been there before you. 
And then be honest. Share your grit. Say, like, I know this is my ugly form, and it's going to look good for a little while, and then it's going to come down and crash hard, and I'm stuck in the weeds again. Can you help me? And they'll say, yeah, I've been there before. Let's do this together because we're better together. This is one way we can experience the gospel together. Life, it doesn't have to be a sea of chaos and evil anymore. Rather, you can walk now with the Holy Spirit. So reverse the story of Noah because now you can walk with God. But, and you have an advantage that no one ever did. You have God's Spirit living inside of you. You've, it's like you've taken a rocket ship to the sun. So draw from its power and bring it back to the rest of us. Creation itself waits for you to reveal who you truly are as a chosen, loved, unique, and divinely designed, welcomed into the free family of God, son or daughter. So let's pray.